and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, May 29th, we're studying Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. In today's text, John sees a great multitude that no one can number, the church triumphant, standing before the throne of God and praising him for the salvation he has won in the Lamb and the Shepherd, Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Great to be back with you today. So we get started today, Pastor Wright. Help us with the book of Revelation in general. What's the approach to the book? Why is it useful and helpful to us as Christians? That's a great question. You know, I, I think one of the things that uh, I'm sure many of the guests that you've had on as during this Revelation study have, have probably mentioned this, that I mean, you get asked questions about Revelation all the time as a pastor. And uh, just the other day, we were ending up our, our women's Bible study for this kind of school year, and we're going to kind of adjourn for the summer and pick back up in the fall. And we were ending a study on the book of Esther, and I was asking the ladies what they want to study next. And of course, you always get somebody that wants to study Revelation. And, you know, because to you, just all these things that you see. And and I, I was telling the, the ladies, I said, yeah, I said, that's something that we can look into studying. I said, it's such a, a book of comfort. And anytime you say that to them, you just see kind of eyes get big. Really? It's a book of comfort because there's so much baggage and so many false teachings that uh, it's a shame that we have. But I mean, the, the devil um, prowls around like a roaring lion. And, and part of that is to obscure God's word and the sweet words of the gospel that we have. But so when I always, so as Christians, I think our approach to the book of Revelation should always go back to Revelation 1.1. That's what my always is my go-to as we kind of ask, why should we study this? Well, let alone that it's in the scriptures, right? But the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, right? Starts off with that. And those first few words of that verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, like anything, the Sunday school answer of why should we study Revelation and why is this important for us as Christians and how do we use it? It's about Jesus, yeah. first and foremost. And that word revelation, where we get this apocalyptic literature from, I, I liken it to you know uh, an unveiling or like ripping open of a, of a curtain, like at a play, and you see these things. We're given a glimpse of what will take place, even what has taken place, and what is to be our future glory. And so we find comfort in this book because we find the work of Jesus, we find his work for us, and we find out, especially as we'll look at the text today, what is going to be our future. Your future is known in the book of Revelation. I think it's it's nothing insignificant that this is the text that we ha hear often at funerals, that we hear um, on All Saints Day. I mean, all of these things like that. So Christians should view the book of Revelation through the eyes of Christ and Christian comfort. 
So as you mentioned, the text we have for today is a fairly familiar one within the book of Revelation. We hear this one pretty regularly in the lectionary, and it's often used in pastoral care for those who are dying or in the context of Christian funerals. Help us situate it within the context of the book of Revelation, because we don't always have that. How does this fit into what John's been seeing and and writing about so far? Sure, yeah. So Revelation kind of 7, 1 through 17 um, is is typically kind of how we'll often see this kind of broken apart. So our section for today is kind of in that kind of that immediate context. But Revelation 7, 1 to 17 is this interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. We think about the sixth seal being 6, 12 to 17, and then the seventh seal being 8, 1 to 5. And, uh, you know, one of my professors at seminary talked about, and, and I think this is helpful for us, especially with this scene, when you look at these interludes or these scenes, it's kind of like in a movie, you have kind of like, there are certain times you have flashbacks or certain times you glimpses of things or just different parts that kind of help you understand not only the context of what's happening at that time, but kind of help the whole thing fit together. So this interlude here that we have in chapter seven really is kind of tying us together of where do we fit into this? So then at the beginning of seven, you have the church militant, you have those who are who are sealed, you know, this, this symbolic number of the 144,000, and you have God's people on earth that are ready to march and carry out the Lord's mi- mission. And then in this second scene, you have this multitude before God's heavenly throne. And this is where this great image of comfort comes, you know, to us here. And we see the church triumphant, right? There's only one church, but we think about the church militant and the church triumphant are together. One is on one side of glory and one is on the other side of glory, but yet it's the same church. And there is this element, too, of where our text will pick up and with the image that we see of kind of even giving answer of who can stand, right? What's the comfort? Who can stand? Well, God's people will stand. Why? Well, we'll get to that in a minute in the text. All right. Let's go ahead and take a look at this text. This is Revelation 7, beginning at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's our text for today. That is Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. Pastor Wright, at the beginning of the text, John looks... And what he sees this time, no, it's a great multitude that no one could number, which is striking given that he's just heard the number 144,000, and we got those 12 groups of 12,000 that are all sealed. 
Now he's got a group here that nobody can number. They're from every nation, tribes, people's languages. What's what's he seeing? Take us into the details here. Sure. I, I think kind of a a good starting point for us is at the beginning of chapter, excuse me, beginning of verse nine here in chapter seven, where there's this uh, this transition. After this, I looked right. So he, we have this image in the backdrop of the hundred forty four thousand. Now, kind of after this, you kind of almost get your kind of a and in your mind, you almost get like a pivot. You know, okay, now now something else is going on here. Behold, right? That's always a big marker in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament as well. Of hey, something something big is here. Pay attention. A great multitude that no one could number, and some things that he tells us from the get go from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So, um, one of the the summer jobs that I had for a couple of years was working at um, Walt Disney World, and uh, I worked a couple of shifts like at uh, you know around Fourth of July. And there's something to be said when you just look at a sea of people around you. Now, when you're trying to sell Mickey ear hats after a parade and they're descending <laughs> upon you, that is a terrifying sight. <laughs> but when you look out and I mean, there are certain times that you just like, I mean, you just can't count the people, right? I mean, you just can't count them. Here, he, he definitely is showing us that he cannot even begin to count them, right? No one could number them. No one. There's so many people. And I think that is such a, an important thing, too, for us as we start to uh, see this idea of comfort or not even idea of comfort, but we are comforted by this text. So coming out of the, the church militant, here is God's people before his throne. You know, we, we look back at, at the Old Testament and we see that they were saved in the same way that we are th- by grace through faith alone. And, you know, so you think about just over the, the centuries, how many of God's people have believed that promise by the work of the Holy Spirit and up to this point, or even that will come after us, that, I mean, that God's word works, God's word, you know, um, creates faith when and where it pleases him. And it's not a universalism here that he's, he's propo- proposing, but what he's showing us is just that the, the, the scope of the salvation of God, of what the lamb has accomplished and that is placed before us. You know, to be in the Christian church sometimes is some, especially in the, when you look in the culture around you, it feels it's very, it can get pretty lonely at times. It can feel like you're the only one there, or is there anybody that thinks like me? I mean, one of the things at church, right, when we have, uh, as Christians, we we're called together and gathered together as the body of Christ. And to be, to see this, that, hey, no, not only are we not alone here on on earth with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but but there's a countless number of hosts mm-hmm. who believe in Christ just as we do. And we're a part of that same church. Um, and I think that's a, a really vivid thing. And not only that then too, but they're from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages. Um, last summer, I had the opportunity to go to teach a, a seminary course in South Africa for two weeks. And, and it was just fascinating to see brothers in Christ, you know, from different countries in Africa, or even to go to church um, in this congregation that actually, it was a German service and spoke German, but yet I had so much in common with them right at the get-go, right? They were from a different nation, different tribes in Africa, different peoples, but yet it was that same faith that had been given to each of us. And that was a a wonderful thing. So I I think that uh, is a, a, a a very important and vivid image you know, as that he kind of transitions us to after coming out of seeing this 144,000 sealed. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of what happens in Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, how you get that listing of all the people who live by faith in the in the Old Testament, and even to the point where the writer can't list all of them, and then he opens into chapter 12, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So here we have that great cloud of witnesses, that, and I, I love that connection that you make, that this is a, a huge number that provides us great comfort as we live among that number. Now, as you said, there's a lot of, you know, they're from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages, but they are united in something. They're united in the faith. And the way that John sees that is they're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're wearing the same clothing. They're clothed in white robes. Now, we've we've seen white robes in Revelation before. Uh, what's What's being communicated here by these saints wearing white robes? Yeah, sure. It, it's, um, I mean... It, it, this is the third time that we see, uh, we see this in, in Revelation. And um, we had earlier the 24 elders. Um, we had the souls of the martyrs between beneath the altar of incense. Um, here then we see these people clothed. Um, and there's this, there's this um, reason that they give. The reason that they, they're clothed in white robes, we'll hear that later of why they are wearing white robes. And it, it's the, in the blood of the Lamb. But they have palm branches in their hands as well. So there's this righteousness. There's this purity that they have before the throne. They're standing there, and they're standing there as people who are holy. They're standing there as people who are pure. They're standing as people then, as we'll you know, see, are, have been washed clean in the, in the blood of the Lamb. I mean, it's very baptismal language. I mean, we, we think about with that, too. It's almost kind of like God tells us there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, or something like that. Uh, you know, as we think about, you know, the whole scope going back to that na- nations thing. And um, so they're clothed in white. I kind of draws to mind that righteousness, that purity language. But it's significant that they are um, before the throne and before the lamb, this idea of the father and the son with palm branches. So palm branches in their hands. There's a bodily aspect to this, too, that we'll come back to as well, kind of toward the ends of this text. So um, this is something, and I, I was just thinking about this earlier today. The last time I was on Sharper Iron, we were talking about Palm Sunday. So oh. the only, and it was the John 12 text. So oh. the only two times in the New Testament where palm branches are specifically mentioned is in John 12 and here in Revelation 7. So how about that? That's about the that? two, yeah, so kind of <laughs> pretty interesting. But, uh, you know, so, the, but palm branches specifically mentioned um, with, uh, you know, ideas of victory, ideas of uh, kind of um, praise, ideas of celebration. Um, I mean, it's used throughout um, the scriptures. It's even in the Apocrypha. We have that image. So this is something that for John, you know, to see this, um, this image of a palm branch is going to invoke this victorious image. There's an image that clearly these people, they're clothed in, in white, which is a color of purity and righteousness, and they're at a victory celebration. You know, something is going on. This is a joyous thing. Um, just from the, just by taking a look and, and seeing this, this is a joyous thing that is going on before his eyes. Hmm. So the, the connection to Palm Sunday, I think, is, is helpful because this is a victory celebration in Revelation 7. And the fact that they're holding palm branches particularly, which, as you pointed out, is this place and then John 12 are the only two places in the New Testament where palm branches specifically are mentioned. The fact that we can connect those two things, I think, helps us in the context of Revelation 7 
to see that the victory that they're celebrating is the victory that Jesus won by that entry into Jerusalem, riding on the lowly donkey, and then all that followed that. So the, the victory comes through his humility, through his suffering, through his death, and resurrection and ascension. I really think that the palm branch connection ties those things together nicely, including into the, what we saw in Revelation 5, that the lamb who reigns, it's the one who's slain. And there's, there's the victory that's being celebrated, is the victory that Jesus won when he rode humbly into Jerusalem on that donkey and Palm Sunday with the palm branches all around him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's the thing in all of this that will, you know, that revelation is just so ripe with is that there's victory in death. So there's victory in death for the lamb who was slain, but hasn't been raised. They're standing before the lamb. Palm branches were strewn before the Lord as he went as the lamb, um, uncomplaining forth to, to his death um, later that week, unholy week. These people are are coming out of you know as we'll see in a minute the great tribulation. They're coming. They they are coming from death to life. They're coming in this new life. I mean, all of this. I mean, it, it's such a, a a thing that only in faith can we really see the significance truly of this of how this all ties together. But what what is the the connecting point in all of this? Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So I mean, it's just so rich in that language of Holy Week. So rich in that language of, you know, um, of the work of Christ. And even then, too, it really then kind of it hits home vividly for us. This is the significance of all of this, guys. You know, that stuff that happened to the Lord that John saw with his own two eyes, right? Now he's seeing this. And there's this. So this interlude is kind of like a, a moment where you can say, wow, I'm seeing what the Lord who I saw face to face what the ramifications are of his life, his death, and his resurrection, and what this means for the whole for God's people, what this means for him personally too. But for us who are reading this, this is um, you know the Lamb who was slain, but they're singing praises to him as these people clothed in white. So that and that's where the the text goes. You've got the saints clothed in white robes. They're from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. They're wearing the white robes. They're holding palm branches in their hands, and then with their voices, they are singing. And we've heard singing throughout the Book of Revelation. We'll continue to hear it later in the book. What's being sung there in verse ten? In verse ten, there is crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this first thing that they are crying out, you know, salvation belongs to God, right? Salvation is his. It's to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're attributing it to, we kind of, I mean, there's somewhat of a, you know, father-son relationship here that we see with that. Um, but they're acknowledging that salvation is theirs. But then the salvation is given out to them as well. I mean, uh, Revelation has uh, quite a theology of worship in it. And there's, I mean, it's no coincidence that a fair amount of the, the singing in Revelation we use either in our hymnody or parts of our liturgy or things like that. It, it informs a lot of those things. But no, the praise here that they're saying, they're, they're giving praise to God by telling what he has done. Salvation belongs to him, Right. And then they'll go on in a little bit, too, of what God has done and will do, you know, uh, because of this this lamb. Um, so that that's kind of the first point of what they're saying or shouting out with a loud voice and singing. And then 
the angels are uh, around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they're falling on their their faces before the throne, and they're worshiping God. So the not only is it the, these people standing before the throne, but all of heaven is rejoicing. All of heaven is rejoicing, and the angels saying Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know, uh, so kind of a, 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 a kind of two interesting things with that, just as we think about our lives today in this world. I always tell people um, uh, when we show up to church, we're always late, right? We're always late because we're joining in with the unending um, chorus of, of the heavenly host. You know, we're, we're just catching up in our place with them. You know, with, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, it's not at that point that they just start singing, right? And that's like, oh, now that's their cue. You know, we're joining with them, right? So here then, there's that. and But then, too, there are things that happen on earth that heaven rejoices in. Jesus tells us when one sinner repents, right, the angels in heaven rejoice. So here, the lamb, uh, these people are before the throne uh, in victory before the lamb, and what are the, what are the hosts of heaven? They're rejoicing in that. They're rejoicing in what God has done for His people that He has redeemed them, and they're ascribing all of these things to God. All of this stuff belongs to the Lord, not just in the past, not just now, but even into an eternity. Um, and I think that's it's just adding another layer to that comfort, right? That heaven rejoices in the salvation that these people have and we have. Talk a little bit about the the posture of worship. I mean, you you mentioned they're holding the palm branches in their hands, but then when the angels and the the elders join in, they're falling on their faces. So, I mean, you talked about the the theology of worship in Revelation. How does the how does posture fit into this? Posture is something that it it always teaches us or informs us about what's going on, and I think that's something here with these angels. Um, they're falling down before the throne because they're acknowledging that they're in the presence of God himself. You know, um, what, uh, the congregation I serve is um, very well catechized in things pertaining to worship. And, there's, and they, they, take, um, they take pride in that in a very good way, that they know why they do what they do. So it's, it's um, one of the things that it's very common here that people will, will bow even as they just cross the center of the you know, if they walk from one side of the nave to the other, you know, they reverence the cross or they reverence the, you know, they kneel at communion or people, you'll have, I mean, all kinds of different things that, that happen with that. But there's this understanding with the posture of worship that, that knows that God is God and we're not, but God is merciful to us and he, and he, to get to, to give us his gifts. So we treat it as such. These are holy things for holy people. And for the angels to fall down, Moses, you know, fell down on his face before the Lord. They're in the presence of God. Isaiah fell down in Isaiah 6. I mean, we have countless examples of this. You come into the presence of God. You're coming into the presence of King. You show reverence, knowing, acknowledging that he is above you. But also then, too, there's this element of, you know, just um, uh, of honoring and uh, of, of what is going on in your midst because of who is in your midst. And in, in the terms of God, we see then for that, there's mercy, forgiveness, or in this case, there's salvation and victory. You had mentioned that that when we join in worship here, we're, we're late in the sense that we're joining in with a worship that's going on continually in heaven. 
And we do mm-hmm. see a glimpse of that here in, in Revelation 7. You mentioned the line from the proper preface that we join with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. As we see the picture of it in Revelation 7, on the one hand, you've got the group clothed in white robes who are crying out one thing, and then you've got the angels, the elders, the four living creatures falling on their faces and singing something else. How I know maybe this isn't as explicit in the text, but how is this working? Is it kind of calling back and forth, and where do we fit into this picture of worship? What's the what's the picture? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of gets to a, a big bigger question too of of what is the scene where's the time frame on this and, and i've always kind of fallen on the side of I, I, he's getting a glimpse kind of of the last day kind of in that in that regard that's kind of all i i i mean i i think there's elements of you know a, a here and now too but but i i think we're included in this vision that he sees i think you and i are, are part of this countless multitude i think kind of just the way of, of how this fits in the book of revelation and, and kind of what, how that all plays out i i think He's, he's getting like a, an image of comfort of, hey, here's a, here's a foretaste of what is to come at the end, right? This is everything is all this stuff that's happening, even some of these horrible things that, you know, you've seen with some of the four horsemen and things like that. This is the end game. You know, this is, this is what it all is, is pointing us to. So I, I, I kind of fall on that mindset. Um, but there is something to be said, though, too, that as we see kind of earlier in Revelation as well, that there is this ongoing worship before the throne of God and how we fit into this is, I mean, we're on, we're in the church militant right now, but it kind of goes back to a theology of the church that there is one church. So even as there's praise going on in heaven and singing going on in heaven, for us to join in with that is not to, to have a separate praise and worship than what is going on continuously in heaven. So we're joining in with them, even though ours might be in this veil of tears, and, um, you know, divine service setting one, um, I mean, people kind of debate the, the language of it, but there's this repentant joy, right, that we talk about at times, you know, so w- our, our joy, we fully don't experience it, what that is now, you know, um, Jesus, um, a few weeks ago in the gospel reading, for, in the one year lectionary talked about uh, for Jubilate Sunday, you know, a little while in your joy, you know, you will see me or not see me, and then you will see me, right, then. He ends that whole thing from John 16 with um, uh, a little while, and then uh, no one will take that joy away from you, right? So we have these little glimpses of joy, and as we join in worship, we we get that in the divine service. We have these these foretastes of heaven, this foretaste of Revelation 7 in our lives that that um, give us that we uh, of what awaits us and what has been accomplished for us. But yet we're still waiting. We're still crying out at times, Lord, how long, you know, to draw from earlier in Revelation. But um, our, our, um, our praise, our songs is still united with those who are before the glorious throne of God because there's one church. Mm, yeah, and that, that is a marvelous comfort. And, and certainly when you think about what else you could be doing on Sunday morning, what, what better thing than to join with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven to praise the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. What joy, what joy. We're going to keep looking at this text from Revelation 7 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Andy Wright this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS-recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 29th. We're studying Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17 with Pastor Andy Wright. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we were talking about this white-robed multitude that John sees. He's heard them singing. He's heard the angels and the living creatures and the elders singing. And then one of those elders asks John, who are these people that are clothed in white robes? So talk about the the question that gets asked here by the elder to John that maybe seems a little unusual. It does. That's always kind of, um, even it, even when I, I read this text every year, you know, like at All Saints Day or something like that, or even at funerals, I mean, use this text all the time at funerals, like you kind of, I, I still, I kind of went, wait a minute, who's asking what? Why is he asking this question, right? Um uh, Louis Brighton in his commentary kind of makes this point that John could have asked the question to himself and then the elder asked him out loud. Like there could be a grammatical argument that you could make for that. It's almost kind of like, you know, who is this? And then you kind of get the, the image of the elder saying, so who are these people? You know, um, we, we uh, kind of will do that at times, you know, we'll ask and then somebody else will kind of, yeah, you're right. That's a good question, isn't it? Who are these people? And then, um, but so John responds to him, you know, sir, you know, right? So there's this, this, um, well, tell me, tell me who are these people? Um, and so this elder then attends John in this vision um, of here. And uh, this is the final, second and final time that an elder stands with um, uh, John in a, a vision that we had one in 5.5 five, and he's pointing out to him the victorious lamb. So I think that's a significant thing now with this elder here too. So he, he was with the pointing out the victorious land, lamb in 5.5. Five, and now here then he's uh, very pointedly kind of pointing to the lamb, showing that the victorious lamb is for the sake of God's people. And how we see that it's for the sake of God's people is he's telling John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So he answers that question with that. And so just, um, you know, I, it, it's such a, a mind-boggling thing to think then that they're white because they were washed in blood. Well, if you've ever gotten blood on anything white, it doesn't make it clean. It's almost the exact opposite of that, right? I mean, so how in the world would they be made white in the blood of the lamb? Gee, maybe it's because this lamb is Jesus and his blood actually cleanses. His blood washes away. His blood forgives. So for them to be washed and made white in blood, well, that can only be done by the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, it's it's in First John chapter 1 where you get that turn of phrase that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I know we haven't talked too much about the order in which John might have written the various parts of the scriptures that he wrote. But if, if Revelation is the first of those books, then you see where that 
line from First John chapter 1 really comes from. That, that's exactly what he saw, was that the blood of Jesus cleansed from sin. And, and that really always has struck me. Just, to, I mean, as you said, you, if you get white, or if you get blood on, on white clothing, it turns red. But here you have blood that, that cleanses, the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a, what a glorious picture, a striking image that I think should stick with us, and rightly so. Now, the elder, before he, he says how their robes got to be white, he says that the, the ones that are gathered here in this uncountless crowd, they're the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now, when it comes to buzzwords surrounding the book of Revelation— the Great Tribulation is one of those buzzwords. So mm-hmm. there's numerous Christian groups that take this and, and run with it in ways that they really shouldn't. How do we understand this? What does it mean that the ones that he sees are those coming out of the Great Tribulation? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question because it, it, it's so easy to kind of just pick this out of, and, and like you said, those buzzwords, and then to kind of lose sight of the whole of Scripture. Revelation is such a book of where we see scripture interprets scripture. And we use even the words of Jesus himself in the gospels to help us understand these things about what these things mean. And so like here, I mean, there is this qualifier that is attached to tribulation. It's great. It's mega lay, like where we get mega, you know, we use that word mega in, in English. So there, there is a great tribulation. He doesn't just say they're coming out of the tribulation, but uh, countless times, especially like in Matthew 24, um, there's other places, Mark 13, Luke 21, that we, we'll talk about that kind of times of tribulation of, of uh, from when our Lord ascends into heaven until he returns again, that there are times of trial, there are times of tribulation for God's people. Um, and I mean, there could there are times that are great. And especially, too, as we think about, you know, heading toward the, the end of all things and, and um, you know, as God's church is being persecuted and these things like that. So I think we just have to see it as we can't we can't try to say, you know, oh, that's this this pinpoint of after before the, the millennium or after the millennium or whatever. When we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that there will be tri- tribulation for God's people um, from that until that time when the Lord returns again. And there will be great tribulation even, too, times where God's people are uh, persecuted, where they are killed. I mean, we see this constantly. In a, and even, you know, especially as there, you know, uh, before he returns again, yes, there's great tribulation. So I think that's just kind of a, an easy way for us to see as we look at how Jesus talks about tribulation in the Gospels, um, you know, in terms of this great tribulation, this this time, you know, coming out of out of out of this life until our Lord returns. Um, and there are great times of great tribulation. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Or... Well, I think, I mean, based on, as you said, based on what Jesus says in the Gospels, I think that we should expect that as long as our Lord does not return, we're not going to see the world, quote, get better. We're going to see tribulation, troubles, sin, evil, all of that is going to increase, uh, such that there is, you know, the Great Tribulation, and we shouldn't expect it to get better. Uh, on the other hand, we shouldn't be reading the Great Tribulation here in Revelation 7.14 and expecting, I think, to be able to identify a particular period such that I could say, I am living in the Great Tribulation, or to say, I'm not living in the Great Tribulation. 
in a certain sense, this great tribulation applies to every Christian of every age since these words were written by St. John, even as we do know that it's going to keep getting worse until our Lord returns again in glory. I, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that's spot on. And I think this kind of shows one of the dangers that happens when we try to, um, you know, misread what certain things are. We, we kind of lose that focus again. You know, I go back to what, uh, you know, what, how does the book of Revelation start? The revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And these things about the great tribulation, or even when you get these, you know, different false views of end times or eschatology, as we talk, call it in theology, you think about that it obscures Christ and his work. You know, um, one of the great things about the creeds that confess a biblical theology of the end times is that Jesus ascends into heaven and he returns again. It's that's beautifully simple, right? He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. You mean Jesus ascended into heaven and he's going to come again and take us to be with himself? Yep, that's a theology of the end times, you know, because who's the actor in all of that? Jesus, you know, yeah. um, but because it's easy for us to want to kind of put this out and try to discern like we're some biblical detective and think, well, I'm living in this time or I'm going through these things. And, um, you know, that. And uh, it, it loses the focus of what is this about? There's great consolation in this. They're coming out of the great tribulation. What that all entails, how great it was, well, it's great tribulation. <laughs> but what, what is the focus? What's the image? The image here is not describing the tribulation. It's describing that they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're standing victorious before the throne. And so um, that's where, I mean, it's, and it's such a great comfort that this great tribulation is over. They're at rest. They're at peace. There's an end to it. The great tribulation is great, but it's not forever. Yeah. And that's, the, that's the, the magnificent thing in all of this. Yeah, that really is. So put the focus more on the fact that they're coming out of this great tribulation rather than trying to figure out what the great tribulation is. Know that the Lord has delivered it from delivered you from it. And then as the the last question of chapter six, who can stand on that great day of judgment? It is those who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Talk a little bit more about the baptismal imagery that's there in terms of the clothing and in terms of the the being washed and made clean. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, this idea of, of standing and being washed and made clean, you know, one of the old customs um, of, of baptism, yeah. I mean, there, we, there's many customs that surrounded it, but one of the things that we think of, um, you used to be baptized naked, you know, um, and then you would be clothed in a white robe when you came out of the baptismal waters. Or we still do this today. Um, you know, we have baptismal gowns that kids will wear. My first um, daughter, she was baptized in the gown that her great grandfather wore, you know, and then uh, she got she uh, went to the bathroom and afterwards they had to get it dry cleaned. It got so messy. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> such it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, those things like that. But but this baptismal imagery of being able to stand before before the throne. Right. We talked about that posture of reverence and falling down on the faces. And, and that's and that's connected to this as well. That there's also a confidence to stand by virtue of your baptism. You have a confidence to stand before the throne of God. I mean, let that sink in for a minute that you can actually stand before the throne of God because you're clothed in Christ. You know, I just had a funeral um, a, a few days ago and with the white Paul, right? That's a baptismal image. So here's this person laying in a casket. 
their soul has gone to be with the Lord and their body is, is now waiting for that glorious last day when, um, in this case, this Christian woman will be raised from her grave. But it's covered in white to kind of to, to draw upon this baptismal image, but also this image of Revelation too. Here she's laying, but because she's clothed in the white of Christ, what's she going to do? That very body that's before us is going to stand. It's going to stand up on the last day. And just like these people, or even, you know, she's in this picture here too. And so, um, so even in death, you can stand because you've been washed and made clean in the blood of the lamb. And that's just, that's so comforting. So comforting. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I've, I've always connected the funeral, Paul, to these verses, especially with the color, but I've never connected it to the laying and standing. And I, I love that. That's an absolutely comforting image and just adds to that tradition surrounding Christian funerals. What a, what a glorious thing that even as the body lays in death, yet we know that in the resurrection, that Christian stands. What a fantastic comfort for those washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now then, in, in verses 15 to 17, in most English texts, these are set off as, as poetry or song of some sort. Is this, I'm just curious, because I've never really known for sure, is this still the elder talking, do you think? Is this John's commentary now? Do you have any, uh, does it matter if it's one or the other? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it possibly could be the elder. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I'm not sure about that. I, I would say it seems to be, um, I didn't look that closely at the, the Greek grammar here to see what was kind of, was, but I, I, I mean, he, he's in a sense, he's telling John these things. So, and he's kind of explaining, I mean, there's this therefore, right? Yeah. He's telling them why they are there. So, I mean, I think that's reasonable to, to say that, that he's, he's kind of showing John this image, telling who they are and telling the significance of it, right? He's unpacking it for him. This elder is teaching John. You know, all right. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I that makes sense to me. Yeah, I've just never really. Reaction. Okay, yeah, that that makes yeah. sense to me. So, regardless, this is it is unpacking of what the elder has just said. So, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Take us into verse fifteen to get started. Absolutely, this continued language of God sheltering with His presence. I mean, what an Old Testament image that is what a New Testament image that is, what an eternal image that is, right? God dwells with his people. Our God is not the God who just sits up in the heavens and looks down and says, huh, that's interesting to watch. He's the one who dwells with his people. He tabernacles with them. I mean, this is kind of that similar language, sheltering here with this. He's the God who you know went with them in the wilderness. He's the God who, who's, uh, who dwelt in, in the tabernacle, dwelt in the temple, He's the one then, too, who the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now, here then, bringing this all together, that he is going to shelter them with his presence. So, you know, the day, they will come when our faith will end. Our faith is temporary. But we will be forever face to see God face to face. You know, as Job 19 con, uh, beautifully confesses, we'll see God with his presence. And, and that presence of God will shelter us. We'll be dwelling with him, even as he mm. came down to dwell with us in our midst for the purpose of um, living obediently for us, dying in place of us, and rising again victoriously. And so to be sheltered then by the presence of God, there are physical things that go along with this too. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. God's presence, who the Lamb 
and our, we know eternally, you know, as our Lord has ascended into heaven, he still is fully God and fully man. Yet there, the, we, we, he will, his presence will be our shepherd or he, he, excuse me, he will shepherd us with his presence. He will, you know, take care of our needs. We will not lack and we will not be harmed. We will be at rest. We will be at peace. And the Lord God will be um, our shepherd and be our, our comfort and even our, our, um, our life itself. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, and especially as we think about, you know, those images that he uses, I mean, how many of these people possibly did die of hunger or thirst or, mm. you know, the sun scorching them? I mean, these things like that, but yet that day is over. That time has come and gone. Yeah. And these are, these are realities that we do know by faith right now. I mean, just the, the image of God's temple being a shelter reminds me of, of several Psalms. Psalm 84 comes to mind about dwelling in the presence of yeah, the Lord. Absolutely. And then the, you know, the sun not striking them brings to mind Psalm 121, that the sun won't strike you by day because the Lord is your keeper. So these are, these are the prayers of God's people all along, and we do receive these things in part, and we receive them now by faith, even as we await the fullness being given on the last day as we see the, the rest of the saints here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even too, I mean, walk this through the, uh, you know, the, the Beatitudes as well, which is the gospel reading for All Saints Day, as we yeah. think about those things, you know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and those things like that, and, and being satisfied, you know, in what our God gives. Um, so all, all of that stuff. Um, so, but the point then kind of draws us back to, so in verse 17, then where he kind of brings this to a head. So why, why all these things for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, right? Here's the lamb. He'll be their shepherd. The good shepherd is the lamb who was slain and he will be our shepherd into eternity. We're his sheep. You know, the, the baptismal vocation that you have as one who can stand before the throne of God is the vocation that is eternal. Those baptismal waters cover you, and from that day into eternity, you will for, you are God's own child. And so here then, you are the she- God's own sheep, and he will be your shepherd unto life everlasting. And he will guard, you know, guide them to springs of li- living water. I mean, there's great Johanni imagery too. I mean, John, the, the you know, the gospel writer, um, St. John, I mean, he just... I mean, his gospel is so connected with, with Revelation and his epistles, too, like you brought in First John earlier. I mean, it's just, it's so, there's such a cohesiveness to it, I think. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, so even in verse 17, just the, the two images next to each other that Jesus, that describe Jesus as both the lamb and then the shepherd, both of those are prominent images within the gospel of John. You have John the baptizer who preaches in the first chapter of John, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, of course, the great Good Shepherd discourse of Jesus in, in chapter 10 of that gospel. And the fact that, I mean, it, it is a striking image as they're connected in Revelation 7. The Lamb is also the shepherd. And I, I think if, to try to draw those two things together, it is the fact then that the Lamb is the one who was slain and now lives and reigns. That is what qualifies him to be the shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says that as the Good Shepherd, he lays down his life, that he would take it back up again. And so even though it's a at least in, from an earthly perspective, it seems to be a contrast or a, a paradox. The lamb who was slain and now reigns is really the only one who can be the shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. Those beautiful paradoxes in Revelation just are so rich. I mean, yeah, the lamb is the shepherd. The, 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 the dead will rise. 
the, you know, the, they're white by blood. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just it's such a just juxtaposition in a beautiful way that, that we see that God's power is made perfect in weakness for one, but also he makes foolish the wisdom of the world too. So here's God's wisdom found in what is this image before us um, and this glorious uh, future that we have in Christ. So even in, in verse 17 as well, as we were saying with the 15 and 16, these are things that we do receive now by faith. So talk about the way the Lord shepherds us now to living waters and wipes away tears now, uh, even as we weep and, and mourn. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, as we think about, you know, who we are on this side, I mean, because it, it's easy for us to, to look at this image and think, oh, boy, that will be great. But now what about now? Right? I'm not yet there. You're not yet there. I just, you know, the, the people that I just did the funeral for and missing their, you know, mother and grandmother, they're not yet there. And, um, but God doesn't, it does, doesn't mean why I'm not iota that God is not shepherding us. You know, um, to be his people is to be, ones who are uh, looking forward to that future glory to be sure, but also the Lord's presence is with us now too. I mean, we gather on Sunday mornings and here he is as we are his baptized people. He's with his word. He's forgiving our sins. He's giving us his own body and blood to eat and to drink. Um, the lamb is, uh, you know, um, point, is giving us a foretaste of that feast to come. He's wiping away tear, tears from our eyes. So even as we do tears, uh, cry, um, we, we mourn as those who have hope. Our tears are temporary tears. You know, so even in this life, we know that the day will come when God will wipe away our tears. And that informs even how we mourn now. We mourn, and it's not to say that you can't mourn. Jesus mourned, right? I mean, another jo Johannine thing in John with Lazarus. Jesus cried, Jesus wept, but yet his the tears are turned to joy as he rose, uh, uh, raised Lazarus from the grave. So it informs then, you know, how God shepherds us with his word in this life, that we find our, we find our, not only our, us, our sustenance, but even our very existence through that shepherding of God through his means of grace and his very real presence in our lives even now. So this is, this image of God's presence isn't some pipe dream that's in, that is out of our reach even now. God still is present with us. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The presence of God for his people is eternal, and it's even now, too. Though now veiled, you know, and, and through means, we, we still are not left without um, God's presence in our lives as he, he comes and, and dwells among us. We have about three minutes left on the morning, Pastor Wright. Reflecting on, again, what is a very familiar text from the book of Revelation, and certainly a very comforting text, help us to, to wrap things up give us the full comfort that is ours in seeing this vision of the church triumphant in Revelation 7. Yeah, I, I think kind of tying this all together, um, I, I think it goes back to how our discussion started today. You know, knowing, um, looking at the book of Revelation, look at it as the revelation of Jesus Christ for us. See what Jesus has done. See what Jesus promises your future to be. And know where you fit in this picture. So where do you fit in all of this? You fit as one of those who has been clothed and made white, washed their robes and the, made white in the blood of the Lamb. That's what's yours in your baptism. And so the day will come when you will stand with palm branches in your hands before the glorious throne, singing his praises into life everlasting, where he will shelter you with his presence. 
And that's something that is not just a, a pious, wishful thinking. That's sure and certain. Those are the promises that God makes to you in this life. So even as you lay down in death, you lay down as one who will stand up, standing victorious before the throne, because the Lamb's victory is your victory. And that, that is something to cling to and something to rejoice in even now. Yeah, what a, what a beautiful picture of comfort that St. John gives to us here in Revelation chapter 7. Pastor Andy Wright is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Behold a host arrayed in white, we sing in the hymn, and that is what John puts before us today, this great multitude that no one can number. They are from every tribe, people, and language, but they are all clothed the same. They are wearing those white robes, and that is the white robe that you and I wear, dear Christian. We wear it in our, in our baptism. We have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb, and in that blood we stand forever before the throne of God, praising him for all eternity, for he is our good shepherd. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Revelation chapter 7, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also use the open mic feature on the app and send up to a 60-second message to us. Either way, it is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.